it's fantastic. Normally the guys don't answer with such vibrance and enthusiasm. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're carrying on in our series to 2 Samuel. And we're coming to an essential part in the book, an essential part in the larger book, the Bible. Uh, 2 Samuel is a core passage uh, that we would probably need a few more sermons to fully grasp the significance of it. So I'm going to try my best to cover some of it this morning. Now, as we approach our text this morning, uh, we need to be reminded of a few things in the context. David has finally been coronated as king over Israel and Judah. He is the king of God, set by God over God's people. He has conquered his most fierce and uh, persistent foes, the Philistines. He has captured Jerusalem, the once impenetrable city of the Jebusites. He has captured it and set it apart as the center of his kingdom. And he has brought the ark to Jerusalem to make it not just the center of his kingdom, but to make it the center of the spiritual kingdom of God in Israel. And all of these events in 2 Samuel lead up to the crescendo of 2 Samuel 7 and what we call the Davidic covenant. That is to say, in this particular passage, God makes a covenant with David. God has established David, has exalted David as king, and now God enters into a covenant with David to bless him with a relationship that will be beneficial to us. A, a covenant relationship that we should note is the high point of the old covenant. It is the shining hope of God's Old Testament saints. And it is the message that Jesus proclaims in his ministry within the new covenant. Now to make sense of all of that, uh, let's turn to our passage and then I'll pray for us and then we'll try and understand something of what God has to teach us in this. This is God's word, let's hear it, Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 to 17. Now when the king lived in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, my with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I'll give them give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with the vision, with all the, this vision, Nathan spoke to David. At least so far in the reading of God's word, may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we come and consider this word, as we consider this promise to your servant David, we pray that we would see the benefit of this for us and that we would rejoice even in this particular promise, this particular passage that we, like the psalmist, would long for your salvation, that we would hope in your word, dear Lord, that our eyes would long to see uh, your word accomplished in our lives. We pray this, we ask this not because we are worthy or deserving or we've earned any merit before you, but because you are gracious and kind. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to start with a controversial statement. Perhaps it's a controversial statement. And that is this, we need a king. Now, as a Protestant, as a white Afrikaner, I don't naturally like that, but we need a king. Although we might not immediately think so, and although we might not even necessarily agree with that statement, we need a king. It might be difficult to grasp, especially given our exposure to kings, Right? In Europe, there is a whole bunch of constitutional monarchs who have no real power and they live uh, extravagant lives far removed from us. Or even in Africa, we have kings, mighty kings, powerful, tremendously influential kings, but with most kings, they serve themselves, they're wicked, and pursue their own passions and delights. In other parts of the world, the Americas, in Asia, they might not be kings, there's the Next worst thing, politicians or dictators. All who for intents and purposes act and behave like kings without, without, with pomp and self-imposed reverence. So you see, given all of this, given our exposure to kings today, given our exposure to selfish and sinful people who exalt themselves, we might feel that we do not need a king. Yet I would suggest to you that we still need a king. Deep down, I think all of us would agree to this, actually. 
when disturbed by dangers, when we are afflicted by anxiety and fear, when we are enveloped by enemies all around us, when we are brought low by heavy burdens, we long for help. We long for someone to come and, and help us, someone to protect us, someone to lead and guard us and defend us. Why do you think we love the stories of heroic kings who vanquish their enemies, who slay dragons and who protect the people under him? Why do you think we love stories like the Lord of the Rings where we see in the return of the king Aragorn, you know that movie, right? Aragorn, at the last moment, as things are as dark as they can be, Aragorn arrives and he brings salvation for the people. He saves them. We love those stories because we want that. We want in our deepest moments of darkness, we want someone to come and save us. Someone to come and destroy our enemies. Someone who will lead us into safety. See, we need a king, and if we're honest with ourselves, we desire one. A holy one, a good one. And the Bible recognizes this, actually. From the very start, God gave us a king. I'm not sure if you realize that. At the start, in Genesis, God gave us, in a sense, a king. His name was Adam, and he was given dominion over all things. He is set by God over all of creation. And he was set as our federal head. That is to say, he was meant to represent us, to lead us into God's presence more and more, to enjoy more and more of God's blessings. But the problem is, instead of leading us into a life of peace and in the enjoyment of God's presence, Adam's sins casting all of us out of God's garden, out of God's presence, plunging us in sin so that sin ravages our world and ravages our life, leading to suffering, ruin, war, and death. See, Adam's sin and our sin in Adam doesn't, however, negate our need for a king. In fact, the opposite is true. It enforces our need for a king. It's interesting, in the book of Judges, uh, we're told repeatedly people did what was right in their own eyes. They followed their own sinful desires. And one of the problems was this. Judges tells that people sinned because there was no king in Israel. You see that emphasized four times even particularly the, the last verse, which sums it all up. People did what was right in their own eyes because there is no king in Israel. See, we need a king, a king who leads, who protects, who guards, who saves. A king under God who leads God's people into peace and the blessings of God. And the good news is, beloved, God has given us that king. He's given us a king who is holy, who is, who is good, who is righteous, who is wise. And he's given us that king who protects us, who, who leads us into God's presence and joy thereof. And that king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember how Jesus starts his ministry? Mark chapter 1. He says this, it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Now, now what is the good news of God? Well, it's this, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And how is the kingdom of God at hand? The king has arrived. The king has come and see this king brings hope for sinful man. This king brings hope for those in need. This king is one who comes for the broken and the lost and the downcast. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7 is the seedbed of this hope. You cannot understand and make sense of the good news of God's kingdom in Mark 1 without the good news of God's promise of a king in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, we find the Davidic covenant, a covenant that God makes with David to give David a kingly son, a son that rules eternally by God and for God and for God's people. And it is this son, this Messiah that provides hope for God's people, Israel. If you read throughout the Proverbs and Psalms, you'll see that again and again, this promise of this son of David is, is meditated upon and referred to as hope for the nation of Israel as they go into exile. When they're disturbed by dangers, when they are afflicted by anxiety, when they are enveloped by their enemies, when they are brought low, they place their hope in this promise. You just go read passages like Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Psalm 132, Isaiah chapter 9, Jeremiah 23 and 33, Ezekiel 36, Zechariah chapter 3 and 6, and on and on. And I would argue, beloved, even this morning for us, this same promise offers us hope. This same promise is given to us as we face difficulties in our exile in this world. This promise that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. Now, now that's a long introduction. Let's, let's get to our text and let's look at our passage. And as we consider the Davidic covenant uh, and God's promise to David, I, I do want us to see the God behind the promises. I want you to see the God behind the covenant. Because our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our plans, not in our initiatives, not in our own efforts. Our hope is in God. And as we'll see in this particular chapter, God takes center stage. All of the action in this chapter is God's action. And so with that in mind, let's consider the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see a God who delights in the presence of His people. A God who delights in the presence of his people in verse 1. We see how the Lord has given David rest from all his enemies. And apparently in his rest, David has built a beautiful palace for himself. And as he rests in his palace, David, with good intentions and sincere intentions, wants to build God a palace. Instead of having God dwell in a tent that's decades and centuries old, David wants God to have a more prestigious and more permanent dwelling place. Now, although Nathan gives his approval, we see in verse 4 onwards that God doesn't give his approval. And the reason for, for God's disapproval is, is actually quite beautiful. 
the reason is this God is content with a tent. Why is he content with a tent? Because God in a tent is able to dwell with his people. He's able to move with them as they struggle, as they have hardships. He is with them. He is beside them. He's in their midst. You see this idea repeated in verse 6 and 7. There God says, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I've moved about with all the people of Israel. It seems almost redundant, but the point is vital to see. God is not so much concerned about a prestigious palace. No, he's more concerned to be with his people. That's an emphatic theme in the seven verses. The Hebrew word for dwell appears seven times just here. And the word for house seven times in the first seven verses and 15 times in the first 17 and the overall point is this. Here is a God who delights in the presence of his people. He's redeemed them from Israel. He's brought them out of slavery. He saved them for this end. So that they would be with him and he would be with them. You realize this is at the heart of God's covenants with God's people. God repeatedly enters into covenants with his people so that they can be with him and they with him, them, he with him. In fact, this is what theologians call the, the Emmanuel principle. Uh, take, for example, Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Or another example, Leviticus 26, 12. And I will walk and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. See, in one form or another, the Emmanuel principle is repeated throughout the Scriptures. Exodus 6, Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 23, Isaiah 43, and on and on again and again, even to the end, Revelation 21. Again and again, through the whole Bible, we see a God who delights in His people. A God who dwells with them. A God who is, in a sense, content with the tent. Isn't it beautiful then to read John 1.14, where we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled amongst us, made His tent among us. See, far more important than a prestigious place is the presence of His covenant people. Now, as we think of this first point, that's, there's a lot of application there, isn't there? To think that this God, this holy, mighty God who reigns and rules over all of history and creation, He delights in His people. Is that not a comfort? That's one of the greatest comforts of the Emmanuel principle. Consider Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you see how comforting that fact is? But the application point I want us to consider, however, is this. I want us to rejoice at God's grace. Rejoice at God's grace. One of the things I didn't realize before I studied this passage is how contrary this is to the ancient world. In the ancient Near East, in ancient Mesopotamia, the general consensus was that it was the responsibility of the people, and in particular the king, to build a temple for the gods to appease the gods. 
to satisfy the gods, to keep the gods at rest, to keep the gods from burning out in anger against you, to earn the favor and the blessings of the gods. See, the, the, the ancient gods were quite demanding. They were quite high maintenance. They, to earn their favor, to earn their blessings, you need to work. To give you one example, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, when he built his temple, he said his desire was this, and I quote, to quiet the heart of Azur, my lord. So he, he's, he was concerned to, to, to give rest to his God, otherwise his God's going to burn out in anger against him. Now the passage before us is quite different to this, isn't it? Here, David isn't working to give Yahweh rest. No, Yahweh, the Lord God himself, gives David the rest. And even when David wants to build Yahweh a house, a temple, God stops him and says, instead, I'll build you a house. Here we see the grace of God. Uh, Eugene Peterson says this, about this passage, this, the message of God through Nathan to David is dominated by a recital of what God has done, is doing, and will do. God is the first person subject in 23 verbs in this message, and these verbs carry all the actions. They are God's actions. David, full of what he is about to do for God, is subjected to a comprehensive rehearsal of what God is doing for David. See, God works. God gives. God initiates. God provides for his people. Beloved, what is that if not grace? We serve a God who abounds with grace, and therefore let us not be proud and self-sufficient and strong-willed. Let us not run ahead of God following our own whims. Let us not think that God needs us somehow. No, let us rejoice in God. Let us rejoice at God's grace in our salvation, that He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His mercy. Let's rejoice at God's grace in your life. Everything you have, every breath, every moment, every gift is a gift from the Father above. And rejoice even in God's grace in the church. We exist and we live and serve not because He needs us, but because He's been gracious. The Psalms tell us if those who labor, the Lord builds us and those who labor, labor in vain without the Lord. See, he is building his church, and let us therefore rejoice in his grace. Rejoice at the God's grace that is lavished upon you, a God who loves to del and delights in his people and to lavish them with grace. The second thing I want you to see from this passage is not just a God who delights in the presence of his people, but a God who uh, desires the peace of his people. A God who desires the peace of his people. In verse 8 to 11, we see more of God's grace, but here particularly to David, both past and present grace or future grace. Notice the various uh, I statements in verse 8 to 11. Verse 8, I took you from the pasture. Verse 9, I have been with you. That's all past grace. Here's the future grace. And I will make you, make for you a great name. Verse 9. Verse 10. I will appoint a place. Verse 11. I will give you rest. 
Now, what's the purpose behind all this? Why has God chosen and set apart David? Why has he promised to make David great? Is it only for the sake of David's exaltation? No, God makes all of these commitments to David for the sake of God's people. Notice, twice God calls David my servant. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David. Verse 8, thus you shall say to my servant, even in the next chapter, or in the next section, verse 8 to 18 to 29, David himself describes himself as your servant ten times. And the question becomes, to what end is David a servant? Well, he's a servant for the sake of God's people, for their welfare, for their protection, for their security, their peace. Remember what we saw in 2 Samuel 5, 12, where it says this, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he, might be ex- and that he had exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people, Israel. See, with all of this in mind, read verse 8 and 11 again. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. For the, what reason? That you should be the prince over my people. That you not just shepherd the sheep, but shepherd my people. Verse 9, and I've been with you wherever you went. And what has he done? And I've cut off all your enemies. I've given you peace. In verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Why? so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. What's the point we need to get? We see you're a God who desires the peace of his people. A God who wants his people to enjoy the rest from their enemies. And to that end he provides David. As a servant, a servant given to shepherd God's people to safety and security. And so far in 2 Samuel, he, he's done that. He's, he's accomplished this. God has given him rest. But as we see in, from chapter 11 onwards, David fails. David sins against God and he sins. And the consequence is it robs the nation of peace and throws his family and the nation into hostility and strife repeatedly. See, David is an imperfect king that should create within us a desire for a perfect king, a king who is the prince of peace, a king who says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world world gives do I give it to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Is it the point to get is this? We serve a God who wants your peace, who wants your rest, who wants you to enjoy freedom from your enemies that burden your soul. And that leads you to the second point of application, and that is rest in God's care. Rest in God's care. I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like God doesn't care. Sometimes we get so disturbed by whatever is going on in the world. We get so afflicted by different fears and worries. We get wearied by our enemies, whether it is those at work or enemies wherever we go or, or just the enemies of our souls. Often we're overwhelmed by burdens, pain, loss, suffering. 
And when we go through these issues, when we find ourselves in these moments, it's easy to think that God doesn't care. In those moments, it's important, however, to remember and rest in the fact that God does indeed care. I, I love this quote by Stephen Charnock, a Puritan, and I trust it gives you a sense of encouragement. He says this, If God is in fact our enemy with only destructive intentions toward us, why do we experience any good at all? It isn't surprising that life is painful, he says. What's surprising is that life is joyful. What do our simple daily joys mean? Does it mean that God is pretending to be our friend? Is he setting us up for an ultimate nasty surprise? Or is it that God is sending us signals daily that his heart is loving and kind? So that we can go back to him in faith and repentance and find his hands open to us. See, we, see a, we serve a God who, who cares for His people, who calls upon us to cast all our anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. See, what rest this truth offers, what hope it brings, God cares. Uh, uh, this week I've been tremendously encouraged by Micah 4. Verse 4, it offers hope to wearied saints. It's a picture of the day of the Lord, uh, where the Lord returns. And notice one of God's goals when He returns. But they, referring to God's people, Jews and Gentiles, they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, that is God's, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. If that's the end goal, beloved, then should it not affect us now? If God plans and promises peace for then, then does that not offer hope for our lack of peace now? Dear wearied saint, dear believer, your turmoil, your anxiety, your fear, your pain, your suffering will not last. Because God has ordained peace for you. Isaiah 26, the saints in heaven declare, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our work. And so realize God promises your peace. He promises to care for us. Consider even the heart of Christ who on earth and is in heaven now. On earth he was our Emmanuel God with us and in heaven he is our intercessor who is for us. Also because, as Hebrews tells us, he, he ever lives to intercede for us. He ever is available to supply you with grace and mercy. Why? Because he's a God who cares. A God who has the intentions, uh, who has the intention upon his heart to give peace and rest to his people. So behold and rejoice at God's care. A God who desires the peace of his people. Thirdly and finally, I want us to see a God who loves the prince of his people. A God who loves the prince of his people. To understand why I phrase it that way, we need to understand verse 11 to 17, which is at the heart of the Davidic covenant. Here in these verses, God promises to build David a house. And there's a play on words as you pick up. 
David wants to build God a, a house, namely a dwelling place. But God, however, commits to build David a house, namely a dynasty, a lineage, a succession of kings. And in particular, God promises to raise up a son of David, a prince, if you will, who, like David, will sit on David's throne. And it is this prince, this son of David, that will build God a house to dwell in. It is the son that will be enthroned by God in an eternal kingdom. It is this son that, will God, that God will discipline for his sins. And it is this son that will be owned by God as a son. And it is this son, this prince of David, that God will love, verse 15, with steadfast love. Steadfast, covenant, loyal, faithful love. Unlike Saul, from whom God withdrew his love, God will never, ever withdraw his love from this son. And we must, what we must realize is it is through this prince, this son of David, that God will accomplish his purposes. God delights, we've learned, in the presence of his people. Well, this son will build a house for God, a permanent house, so that through this God, through this son, God's presence is enjoyed. Not only that, God desires the, the peace of his people. Again, this son of God, this prince, is said to reign eternally in a secure, unthreatened, unrivaled kingdom. Verse 13, where it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's being promised here? What's the hope being offered to you, dear believer? God's people will enjoy God's presence and God's peace in and through this prince. In and through David's son, who will be called God's son. Realize what's being promised here isn't merely offering hope to David. No, it's offering hope to all of God's people. David understood this in verse 19. David says, this is instruction for mankind. Do you want to have peace? Do you want to enjoy God's presence? Do you want to experience the rest from enemies? Well, then set your hope upon this prince. Set your hope upon the one whom God has set his love eternally. Now, we need to recognize on the one hand that this promise has been fulfilled somewhat in Solomon. Solomon uh, sat on David's throne. Solomon built the temple for the Lord. Solomon was treated as a son by God and disciplined. But on the other hand, we must recognize that much of this promise is unfulfilled by Solomon. Why? Because Solomon's kingdom didn't last. His kingdom didn't bring in peace or security. In fact, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split into two, and it's engulfed regularly and repeatedly by war and hostility. And so the question to ask, and, and the question every Jew in the Old Testament asked was this, where is this king? Where is this king? When will he arrive? We know the answer. He has, he has arrived in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of God. Listen to Luke 131. The angel comes to Mary and makes this announcement. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, the New Testament is quite clear. This son is none other than the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the final point of application is this. Beloved, rely upon God's Son. Remember, it is our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin that casts us out of the garden of His presence. It's our sin that robs us of peace and joy. And you cannot enjoy God. You cannot enter His presence and enjoy His peace until your sin has been dealt with until the enemy of your soul has been conquered. And the good news of the Davidic covenant is that this king who conquers sin has been provided. Look, look at verse 14 and 15. Look at this interesting two verses. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not part from him. Now many think that that refers to Solomon and not to Jesus. And well, no, it's true, right? Jesus didn't commit any iniquity. But it is also wonderfully true that he took the place of sinners. It's wonderfully true that he was disciplined for our iniquity. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. And taste the wages of sin, which is death. See, at the cross of Calvary, he bore the rod and stripes of men, tasting death to save men and women from sin. Which means we have a king who doesn't serve somewhere in a lofty throne in an expensive mansion. No, we serve a king who comes to a bloody cross and gives himself for his people. A, a king who welcomes us as we celebrated this morning into the feast of his presence where we indwell, he, or he indwells us and we enjoy his peace. And, and so if you want the hope of God's presence and the hope of God's peace, rely not on yourself, your own good deeds, your own works, your own ideas. No, rely upon, believe in, trust in, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the King you need. He is the King that your heart actually desires. A King who can protect and guard and defend you. A King who can lead you into the paths of peace. That's the promise given you. That's the hope that He set before every single one of us. God's presence and God's peace because of God's prince. The, the question is, is he your king? Have you yielded yourself to this king? Now, what does it look like for that to happen? Well, three things, quick, and I'll close with this. If he is your king, if you rely upon the son as your king, then set yourself apart for him. No longer live for this world. No longer live to serve your own pleasures. Yield yourself. Give up your allegiance to him. Secondly, if he is your king, if you rely upon the son as your king, serve him. Give yourself to him as we were even reminded this morning. Serve him in the church. You're doing it not for us or anyone else. You're doing it for him. 
He is your king. But if he is your king, if you rely upon the son as your king, set your eyes upon him. He is our hope. This passage remains the seedbed of hope for the believer. Just as the saints in the Old Testament long for the son of David to come, we have, a, have the joy of knowing that he's arrived. But just like them, we await the return of the king. We wait for him to come and enter us into his presence so that all death and pain and suffering and loss and all our enemies are dealt with. This is the king that we need, beloved. Let us hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for this passage and the promises therein. Thank you that it prepares us for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it reminds us again of your commitment to save your people, your commitment to be with them and to give them rest, your commitment to do them good because you are good and you do good. And dear, thank you that we can enjoy the, the full weight and joy of this, this passage because we have the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, dear Lord, to trust in Him, to wait upon Him, to look to Him, to have our hopes set upon Him and Him alone, and the one who is indeed our King and our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.